Namaste to all. Manogna and I would like to begin this talk by thanking the team at Sangam Talk uh, who made this session possible. Thank you very, very much. Uh, before we proceed further, two things. Our work, papers, presentation and more are accessible from our account on Academia. It's called Bharatiya Chronology. You see the link at the bottom where even this presentation too may be uploaded later. Now, for reasons both academic and otherwise, we request that screenshots taken, if any, during the session are shared along with the link in the, of, to the presentation in academia so that there is traceability. Thank you. Now, also neither of us associates wholly with either left wing or right wing or any wing or any ideology. And it would be rather reductionist and news to us if our views or our work can be reduced wholesale and stuffed into such claustrophobic labels. Now, with those two things out of the way, the title of our talk today, as you can perhaps see, is From the ABC of Indian Chronology, Epoch of Buddha's Parinirvana. Now, on your right, you will see what we call uh, the ABC of Indian Chronology. It's a framework that Manogna and I introduced uh, in our first paper on chronology, jointly authored in 2016 and presented in early 2017. ABC here, as you can see, is an acronym. A stands for Aryan migration, B for Buddha, Gautama, and Bharata, as in Mahabharata, and C for Chandragupta, Maurya. Now, our talk is divided broadly into three parts. In the first part, after brief introductions, which will include a bit about our backgrounds, uh, a timeline of our joint work on chronology thus far, we address three whys. Why chronology? Why ABC of Indian chronology? And why the Heinz Bechert's volume? Which, as you may have noticed, is mentioned as part of what differentiates our work from some of the other works on the epoch of Gautama Buddha, especially after 1995. In the second part, we present some facets of our original published multidisciplinary analysis the disciplines being philology, archaeology, astronomy. And in the third part, after stating our conclusions, we look forward to taking questions, if any, that are specific to our presentation, for which we seek the support of the session moderator from Team Sangam. Okay, so a bit about our background now. Manokna Shastri is a Swadeshi Indology research scholar and published author. She's a master of science from the Indian Institute of Astrophysics with a strong background in theoretical physics and mathematics. Her research interests encompass consciousness studies and civilizational studies centered around India, including focused aspects of chronology and desacralization. Anugna is a passionate environmentalist involved with solid waste management issues in Bengaluru, as well as a keen gardener. Her papers can be accessed on academia at her link which is shown at the bottom. Over to you, Manogna. Namaste to all of you. It's a pleasure to introduce my co-author, Meg. Meg Kalyana Sundaram is an Indian citizen with close to nine years of professional experience in China. His postgraduate specialization in strategy, marketing, and leadership from ISP included a study of research methods. His professional experience includes a stint as market leader at a Fortune 40 technology firm and a term on the board of a Shanghai-based not-for-profit. His research interests currently include Eurocentrism, 
Decolonization, Ancient India in Global and Transnational History Narratives, with a focus on aspects of chronology, Indian knowledge systems, landscape and texts, philosophy, and jurisprudence. Other professional and pro bono pursuits have included building differentiated digital platforms targeted at specific learning and research needs, and composing new songs in Sanskrit. His contribution to an aspect of the International Day of Yoga was recognized by an invitation to attend the inaugural at the UN. His papers are accessible at his academia profile, which has been shown. To give a sense of our collaborative work, Megan, my collaborative uh, efforts started on chronology from our first participation in 2016 at the first Swadeshi Indology Conference held at IIT Chennai. At the second SI conference held at IGNC in February 2017, we presented our first joint paper, Purvapaksha of Sheldon Pollock's Used Chronology, in which we introduced for the first time our ABC framework. This confederation was based on our analysis of chronological positions of 17 important voices across extensive periods and backed by resulting comparative reading tables of chronology. The paper also introduced some of our original philological data and analysis on the river Saraswati in Mahabharata. All these efforts were recognized with a best paper award at the conference. In late 2017, at the third Swadeshi Indology conference, we presented our work on the A of the ABC of Indian chronology, which examined certain dimensions of the Aryan problem. Throughout the year, we also continuously engaged with ICHR and the Ministry of Electronics and IT through the mechanisms of RTI and public grievance redressal to effectuate certain important changes to the National Portal of India website. In 2018, our work on dating Gautama Buddha's Parinirvana a critique of Heinz Beschert's Equal Chamber was published in the Quarterly Journal of the Method Society. In 2019, our paper on the Aryan problem from the perspective of textual evidence and linguistics was presented at the sixth Swadeshi Indology Conference at Delhi University. Further, the B of ABC of Indian Chronology was presented at the inaugural conference on Indian Chronology at IGNCA and our work on the Saraswati in the Mahabharata was presented at the International Conference on Endocrinology at Punjab University. The paper was appreciated by Padmashri Dr. Subhash Krat as well, to which both of us are grateful. In March 2020, our abstract of the paper, Re-examining Indology, the place of a reliable Bharatiya chronology, was shortlisted by IIAS and ICCR for their international conference on re-examining Indology, retrospect and prospect. That is the timeline of our joint work thus far, and Maid will lead us through more specifics. Thank you, Manogna. So, uh, taking off from where Manogna closed the, the timeline with, our abstract, which was shortlisted for IIAS ICCR International Conference last year, that abstract, which you see on your screen right now, is a good segue into some of the, our thoughts on why chronology. Also given, it contains some related questions of which I will mention just 
one here. For sustenance of a reasoned, empirically verifiable narrative of Bharata's past and a fair global history of ideas and vidyas, should a reliable Bharatiya chronology matter? To be clear, it is not our view that chronology is the only facet of the study of the past. It is not even our view that it is perhaps the most important facet of a study of the past or that every scholar working on history has to study chronology. Of course, all studies concerning the past need not obsess over chronology, dates, etc., etc. And we readily agree with some other scholars who emphasize the need to look back into the past for topics such as ethics, values, etc. At the same time, however, while everyone studying the past need not focus on chronology, surely it can't be the case, or at least a reasonable case from our point of view, that chronology is wholly ignored by all scholars dealing with history, uh, simply because of challenges in pursuing it, which could be because of, for instance, destruction of evidence, either natural or forced, perceived gaps, etc. Chronology, in our view, has its commensurate place in the study of past, uh, including in early India when indigenous concepts such as Vamshavali existed, for instance. Now, scholars like Sheldon Pollock, for instance, place chronology at the heart of the comparative historical process, quite rightly so. Uh, to recognize that is not to endorse the need for comparative historical practice, but to simply say the fact about its place in the comparative historical processes. Now, without chronology, establishing cause and effect can be difficult, if at all possible. Altered chronologies can also allow for the possibility of proposing new hypotheses, which could constitute serious issues such as appropriations, reattributions, distortions, leading to inventions of new ethic histories altogether, or problematic wholesale characterizations of an entire people, a civilization, and their texts by calling them things like lack of historical consciousness. Now, Manubna will now address the second why, which is why specifically ABC of Indian chronology. Over to you, Manubna. This understanding made expanded on of the central role of chronology in historical causation on one hand, and as a vital part of the ethic lens on the other, is important while considering any chronological template. In particular, the results of historical practice applied to the Indian past are manifest in their most potent form in the ABC framework, as we will see in this section. Almost all mainstream academic material, for instance, consider this 2019 edition by Murphy and Stapleton, titled A History of Asia, carry a chronological template for India, such as that shown in this timeline, with milestones centered around key points, the alleged Aryan migration in second millennium BC, Buddha dated approximately around fifth century BC, and Maurya around third century BC. Changes to any of these key milestones based on critical examination of the assumptions and methods which led to these dates has a domino effect on the entire chronological template of India, as well as the results of commonly accepted historical practice. For instance, if Aryan migration is disproved, 
then it could lead to potential restoration about the truth of the indigeneity of civilizational assets, such as the earliest form of Samskritam, amongst other consequences. If Buddha and or Chandragupta Maurya, which is the sheet anchor of Indian chronology, is changed, then it has a cascading effect on other aspects, such as, for instance, date in the Upanishads. The milestones thus chosen, Aryan, Buddha Gautama, Bharata, and Chandragupta, form the nodal parts of our framework for Bharatiya chronology. Understanding the implications and stakes of this disproportionate impact has been central to our work in chronology. On the Aryan problem, our 2017 paper recognized that whether posited as an invasion by or, a, or migration of Aryans, the variant forms of this into India hypothesis are underpinned by one constant, which is the consequence that priceless civilizational assets, such as the earliest forms of Vedic culture and Samskritam, are not indigenous to India. Given this rather startling consequence to Indic history, our paper meticulously demonstrated an absence of proof for such a result in key Indic texts through a study of the terms Arya and Dravida by creating more than 200 data points from a range of Indic texts. We also considered the specific problematics in the development of the Aryan hypothesis in, in historical linguistics, including new and original arguments. Further in 2017, we saw the importance of leveraging our academic research to effect changes on platforms such as the National Portal of India, which until our efforts carried questionable statements related to our historical collective identity. Through RTI and other mechanisms, we engaged with the National Portal of India, raising eight documented and pointed questions concerning the representation of Samskritam and the Aryan issue on their website. Subsequent to our questions and engagement, the words Aryan and Indo-European were edited out of the National Portal of India, along with problematic statements concerning the origin of Hinduism and composition of the Rigveda taken down. This marked for us an important token of the impact of our work. Another key milestone of Bharatiya chronology is the epoch of the Bharata War. And as a part of our ongoing work, Maid and I have created a database of 222 verses of the utterance of the term Saraswati from the 80,000 plus verses of the Bodhi critical edition of the Mahabharata. We have identified in this database, how many and which of these terms specifically refer to the river and studied the verses for descriptions of its vitality. In light of scientific evidence from fields including geology, geomorphology, geohydrology, archaeology, and textual evidences, we explored the possibility of a terminus antiquem for Mahabharata at around 1900 BC. Amongst all mainstream chronological accounts, the dating of Chandragupta Maurya, referred to by the C in our ABC framework, refers to the first, in, to the first quarter of the fourth century BC, finds a conspicuous consonance. This sheet hanger of Indian chronology, based on the synchronism between Chandragupta Maurya and Sandra of Greece, 
is subject to a close scrutiny in our paper. To understand the agency behind this now 220 plus year old conjecture, we trace the genesis of this idea by explicating the main threads of work of several players from early European Orientalists such as Jones, Francis Wilford, Mill, Princep, Elphinstone, Mueller, to Weber and Maple Duff and Winston Smith, as well as modern Orientalists such as Rhonda, Pollock, and their. Indian uh, support counterparts such as Tharoor, such as Thapar. The consequent theorizations and distortions that have emerged in the mainstream narrative from this important milestone are studied in our 2017 paper. Considering the key chronological milestones discussed thus far, our ABC framework broadly classifies the positions taken by scholars on them as insider or outsider. The ABC framework thus becomes a short yet effective checklist of four Indian chronology related poison pills, which in our opinion present divergent positions from the chronological narrative that existed prior to the colonization of India. A scholar might be based on the approach used for one epoch, be an insider, whereas on another epoch, based on the approach used for it, be an outsider. While each milestone has specific arguments on what constitutes an insider or an outsider position, we draw attention to some characteristic traits of both. Demanding higher standards of multidisciplinary critical examination for data from Indic sources, when compared to those from other traditions, particularly Greek, is a quintessential outsider approach. This is sharply manifested in the default suspicion and lack of critical examination with which data from Indic sources is treated and in fact accepted only if corroborated by a non-Indic source. While differences in etic and emic perspectives are expected in the study of any civilizational corpus, the extent and depth of distortions of Bharatiya chronology that have resulted from the foisting of the outsider approach as the mainstream, present a strong enough case for it being one of the biggest victims of Eurocentrism and Western universalism. The insider approach, on the other hand, while using critical methods, does not resort to excessive hermeneutics of suspicion in its treatment of Indic sources. The use of methods and sources from within Indic canons and traditional disciplines to corroborate timelines is given primacy. The treatment given to oral tradition is another point of divergence between the two approaches, with the outsider position devaluing it. On the Aryan issue, the outsider position subscribes to the Aryan migration into Bharata theory, and as discussed earlier, attributes Samskritam and the Vedas to migrators rather than indigenous conceptions. The insider position questions the migration theory as well as the key non-attribution of Samskritam and Vedas to the indigenous people. On dating Buddha's epoch, the outsider position peds it to 6th century BC or later, while the insider approach questions this, especially considering that it is based on the Chandragupta Maurya synchronism and Sandrakuta synchronism. The outsider view's primacy, accorded to the synchronism as a sheet anchor, 
is challenged in the insider approach and alternate possibilities, which also fit with index sources, are studied. The ABC framework thus has its chassis made out of these four tremendously consequential chronological milestones, with insider and outsider positions on each subject to specific conceptions. Maid will now take us through why we chose to engage with the Heinz Beshert volume in particular concerning the B of the ABC framework. Um, so having seen why chronology and why ABC of Indian chronology, now on to the third why. Why Heinz Beshert's volume? In our view, we see at least three reasons. It is by far the most voluminous multidisciplinary publication dealing with the epoch of Buddha making it perhaps unarguably the gold standard in mainstream academia for this topic. It is hence less surprising to see it cited in reference textbooks for history students in India, for example, the one by Dr. Upinder Singh, and in reference links on the Harvard domain. Now, recently, Beshert's volume, I'd shown this earlier, but waving it again, has been hailed as a tectonic shift in... Uh, what Dr. Dominic Kujastic, an influential scholar, has called revolutions in Indology. Now, one way to grasp the significance of Buddha's epoch to the mainstream of chronology of early India, in mainstream academia, that is, is to consider the words of Beshert's, uh, Beshert, consider the words of Beshert himself. Quote, most chronological calculations concerning the age of Brahminic literary works on the development of early, middle, Indic languages, etc., are based on because both Westerner and South Asian researchers made all relevant calculations using this chronology as a starting point. The same may be said for many datings of archaeological findings in the pre-Maurian pre period, unquote. Now, Christian Violetti's chart, originally found in ancient.edu and now also in open.edu, can help one visualize the different named schools of thought in play, in the academic mainstream at least, when it comes to the date of Buddha. They are, as you can see on your screen, long chronology or Silonis, corrected long chronology, short chronology, which is ironically called Indian. We will come to all of this in a bit. Uh, as a summary uh, of Beshert's view, as we understood it, in the course of his final analysis, Beshert has endorsed the original correction to the long chronology, hence rejecting the long chronology, has then gone on to reject the corrected long chronology also, and the subsequent short chronology in favor of his view. He has placed the Nirvana between circa 400 BC and 350 BCE. Now, while this is kind of short summary, let's dive deeper into some aspects of this volume. But before doing that, though, some historical context would be very relevant. In perhaps the first book in English, at least, focused solely on Indian chronology, titled The Chronology of India, and published towards the end of 19th century, its author Mabel Duff included the following remarks on how the date of Buddha's death was assigned. Quote, the chronology of this dynasty 
and that of Buddha's date are determined by the initial date assigned to this king. Unquote. This king, as you can see, referred to Chandragupta Maurya. Duff makes it also clear who should be credited for this. Quote, to Sir William Jones, we owe the identification of the Sandrocotes or Sandrocoptus of the Greek writers with Chandragupta, the founder of the Maurya dynasty, whose date BC 315, unquote. About a century before Duff's book was published, William Jones, writing towards the end of 18th century, had posited that Chandragupta was, quote, no other than the very Sandro Cotis. It should be remembered that Jones was writing a little over a century after James Usher's now perhaps infamous but then famous hypothesis of the creation of the earth in 4004 BC. In fact, uh, Charles Petzold has recently traced the change of biblical chronology in Encyclopedia Britannica. And I'll just cite one excerpt from his uh, work. Quote, in its history of Encyclopedia Britannica, the great E.B. notes that the 10 volumes of the second edition published between 1777 and 1784 include many new articles, including the one that we are interested in. In chronology, the date of the world's creation based on Archbishop Usher's reckoning first added to the English Bible in 1701 was given with firm decisiveness as 4004 BC, unquote. It should hence be less surprising now to see a colonial Jones attempt to force fit the then chronology of India into the Usher biblical frame. Hence, you have the chronological table you see on the right of your screen right now, where Manu is placed along with Adam and Rama is added to the table much later. Now, while there are many people and many voices, some may say scholars, between Jones and Duff, who took Jones's synchronism to be some kind of a sanctuary thing and proceeded to make changes to Indian chronology, there is at least one European published evidence from the 19th century that records, quote, Google translation, that Chandragupta, according to Hindus, lived 1502 years before the Christian era, unquote. This is found attested in M.A. Troyer's French translation of Kalhana's Rajatarangini, published in the middle of 19th century. Troyer seems to have called out what might today be characterized loosely as Eurocentrism when he wrote, and I quote Google translation, we must above all leave aside the opinions of European writers today, unquote. Now, coming to the Beshert's volume proper, and in it, Dr. Singland Heights Dites essay. According to Beshut, Deitz's essay is a detailed presentation from, quote, the earliest period of relevant European publications, unquote. Keep this in mind. This is European publications. There is a gap over here before European publications and outside of Indic publications. You have some Islamic sources and uh, Vedvir Aryaji recently has found out some good, has brought out some good findings in, in this regard. And you'd like to acknowledge that. In part one of that essay, we found in uh, Deitz's essay, we found at least 27 different names, starting from Matthew Rickey, 1584, to Jonathan Forbes, 1836. These have been tabulated with more detail in table eight of our paper, but the 27 names have been included in this slide for your reference. Let me draw your attention particularly, particularly to Eugene Burnoff, who 
writing over 30 years, about 30 years after Jones had postulated his synchronism, had given an explanation to reconcile a Japanese source with the Sinhalese-based epoch. Uh, and I quote, This, though, is not the true date of Buddha's Nirvana, 543 BC, being the date of the death of the patriarch who first introduced the Buddhist teaching to the Sinhalese, whereas 950 BC is the true date of the Nirvana of the Buddha Shakyamuni, unquote. This is just one example of how there were attempts to reconcile earlier epochs, the ones uh, other than the Sinhalese-Silonese one, which was fast being favored Orientalists. Now, after identifying the 27 names, what we did was, through constructing of semas, uh, stemmas in a genealogical trace, we identified the following groupings on positions, which have been tabulated as you see on your screen. Now, the broad groups that emerge are CME, Sinhalese, both scholars who endorse these positions in one group. There's a Christian view, there's a view that uh, Jesus Christ and Buddha are the same also for uh, good measure. Then there is there are Chinese views, there are Tibetan views, and what you see is in assorted uh, positions. Now, at this juncture, four observations, in our view, merit emphasis that there were from this table, as you can see, many different views about Buddha's Parinirvana, and 542-543 BC was only one of the many. Okay. The second thing is in this uh, part one of our essay, the Brahminic or the Puranic data point of middle second, second millennium BC, recall uh, Troyer's attestation, is actually completely absent. Absent is also any dated primary source indigenous to the Indic tradition, text or inscription that actually supports 542 or 543 BCE. And there were others, we gave you one example uh, of Eugene, who were theorizing alternate reconciliations uh, other than uh, just endorsing 542 or 543 BC. Uh, in other words, we first see a selection bias evident from the so-called Brahminical data point being ignored which was upheld even by 19th century scholars like Croyer, who was no Brahmin, by the way, then a hasty generalization, as should be evident from questionable prioritization of 542 BC as the year of Buddha's Parinirvana, followed by a confirmation bias, as evidenced by the arbitrary correction to 542 BC, in order to ensure consistency with the Chandragupta Sandrokotas synchronism before rejecting the corrected long chronology itself finally on other grounds whilst retaining the synchronism effect. Now, the, the Ashokan edicts were assigned the dates based on the synchronism effect in 1837 by turnover. Recall that there was no independent scientific dating method like carbon dating, for instance, back in 1837. Now, the same Ashokan edicts in 20th century and 21st century, which were assigned dates using methods that have certain methodological issues that we outlined right now, are today used as evidence to corroborate the date of Ashoka and Chandragupta Maurya, thereby setting in place what we see as a circular fallacy. Uh, with that, there is a lot more in our paper, uh, so, but we'll proceed to the next uh, domain, which is archaeology. 
Now, in Herbert Hartel's essay, the only one in Heinz Beschert's volume focused singularly on archaeology, Hartel concludes, quote, the scouting through the Buddhist sites has, if a conclusion can be drawn at all, roused doubt in our mind if all the places where the Buddha lived of or which he is said to have visited existed in the 6th century BC, unquote. In this section of our paper, citing archaeological evidence post-1995, we have demonstrated that of Hartel's analysis for nine sites, the conclusions he reaches for at least six are acutely less tenable after 2017. Now, for instance, for Vaishali, Hartel concludes that the earliest habitation was around 500 BC. For Shravasti, he says not older than 6th century BC. For Kaushambi, he says not earlier than 6th century BC. For Rajakraha, he posits at best be pushed down to 500 BC. For Bodhgaya, interestingly, he himself says very old settlement back to Chalcolithic times. And finally, for Lumbini, first settlements did not even reach the 5th century BC, according to Hartel. Now let's address the first four together. Vaishali to Rajagraha. In an article titled No Age, No Dark Age in Indian History, Archaeological Evidence, published in 2013, B.R. Mani has included Vaishali, Shravasti, Kaushambi, and Rajagraha in the list of places for which he has concluded thus, quote, in view of the archaeological evidence from the sites of the Mahajanapadas, it could be authentically concluded that these political principalities and states were well established during the second millennium BCE, unquote. Mani has reinforced this view in a subsequent publication in 2017. All these uh, are detailed in our papers. There's a reference. Seen in light of Mani's statement that I just quoted, Hartel's conclusions for 1 to 4, that is Vaishali, Shravasti, Kaushambi, and Rajagraha, of neither of them showing habitation before 600 BC, are, in our view, uh, an assessment less tenable, uh, acutely less tenable, in 2019 and after. In a paper published in 2013, Mishra and Hazarika, also archaeologists, have shown that the Chalcolithic period uh, was established by 2nd millennium BCE in Bodhgaya, which is the fifth place, which now finally brings us to Lumbini. We went, uh, we went over already what Hartel had said for Lumbini. The first settlements did not reach, uh, even reach the 5th century BC. Now, in a paper titled The Earliest Buddhist Shrine, Evacuating the Birthplace of the Buddha, Lumbini, Nepal, published in journal Antiquity, in 2013, Conningham et al. have included thus, quote, radiocarbon samples from two contemporary post-hole fills, parenthesis context 553 and 557, provided dates of 799 to 546 BC and 801 to 548 BC, table 1, suggesting an extremely early delineation of sacred space within this locality and pushing the activity at Lumbini far before the reign of Ashoka, unquote. As you might observe from the table, which is there on the left side, 799 to 546 BC and 801 to 548 BC are from the column titled calibrated 95.4% uh, 
2 sigma. If one sees C14 age BP, which is the third column from the right, one sees much earlier periods as well, going back, in fact, even to the third millennium BC. However, sticking with the author's conclusions and being super conservative, we posit that if Conningham et al.'s results hold, then 548 BC at least should serve as a fairly conservative terminus antiquum and also bringing Hartel's view about Lumbini into question in light of the subsequent published evidence. Now, our paper again contains more details, but I will now hand it over to Manubna for astronomy part. Thank you, Bill. There have been attempts on the Indian side in recent history to use astronomy to date the birth and death of Buddha. Pandit Krota Venkatachalam, Acharya, Swami Sakyananda, Dr. Saint Gupta, Professor Narahari Achar, they've all used astronomical tools to arrive at the chronological epoch of Buddha. To use astronomical markers for computing this milestone, the primary data required consists of any astronomical observations made during the life of Buddha that have been recorded in the canons, along with the coordinates of the places that have played a significant role in Buddha's life to which the observations are linked. Unlike Indian words, for instance, related to the Mahabharata, which see a host of astronomical references, Buddhist words, unfortunately, carry few such markers. Some are found in the Buddhist words Samyutta Nikaya, while Reverend Begandit's two-volume The Life or Legend of Gautama, it's an 1880 work, being the translation of Mala Lankaravattu, has a few other astronomical markers which can be used for computation. Even in his 1880 work, interestingly, uh, Reverend Begandit acknowledges that the Tibetans, the Mongols, and the Chinese place Buddha's time much earlier to that of the Sinhalese, and that the Europeans prefer the latter date. The marker in Begandit's work have formed the basis for two major analyses by Dr. Swami Pillai and by Pandit Krota Venkatachalam. And interestingly, both arrive at different dates that satisfy the same conditions. Astronomical observations during the period of the last months of Buddha's life, as found in the work Samyutta Nikaya, form the primary source for analysis in our paper. Ancient Indian chronology published in 1947 by P.C. Gupta also is based on the same primary source. While we use astronomical techniques in our study as a method of triangulation along with the other disciplines, we also qualify it that one must define clearly the scope and focus of using it as a tool and not use it for wide brush strokes which uh, make claim outside the purview of what we have defined. And keeping that in mind, our approach to using astronomical techniques to study in the year of Parinirvana is set in three major stages. In the first, we identify and define the astronomical events which serve as the constraint set to look for the year of the death of Buddha. In the second stage, we create master data sets of all the years considered as that of the Parinirvana in two ways. First, by searching for the years that match the constraint set defined in the previous stage using Stellarium as the software. And second, 
using the compilation of years believed to be that of the parinirvana from across a range of various traditions and sources including the indian puranic colonial indian sinhalese chinese tibetan and japanese we consider 42 such data points in our analysis in the third stage we use nasa's five millennium solar and lunar eclipse catalogs as well as stellarium once more to apply the constraints from the first stage to the master data sets and narrow down the most viable data points that satisfy the conditions which we have set up the mantras that we have from buddha's life from our primary source are from the time he spent about 3 months of his life at shravasti before heading towards krishnanagara where buddha spent his eventual last days before the parinirvana the deva samputta nikaya samyutta nikaya refers to the occasion when a lunar eclipse and a solar eclipse occurred in succession when buddha was staying at shravasti along with references to kashyapa and makha the sutra contains defining astronomical constraints believed to have taken place 3 months before the death so along with this there is identification of kashyapa with prajapati and winter solstice meghha de madha as with the month of the lunar month madha ending on a full moon then thirdly the subsequent occurrence of the lunar eclipse that is chandima is engulfed by rahu as said in the uh, sutra fourthly the following solar eclipse within a fortnight that is suryo engulfed by rahu along with these constraints which have been, i mean along with these markers which have been extracted from the sutra we place additional constraints that the requirement of vaishakha purnima occur within a period of 90 days from that of the winter solstice we also require the vaishakha purnima to occur before the following vernal equinox and we require that the lunar eclipse to have occurred at the start of the month and the solar eclipse at the middle relying on the phrase in the sutra that kashyapa madha and chandima and suryo visited in quick succession all of the above requirements constitute what we see as the constraint set and we refer to them in the methods that we will be applying in the next stage it's important to note at this stage that even professor narahari achar has studied the problem using the same constraints between 1900 and 400 bc and he has arrived at 14 data points for application of the constraints professor achar has also analyzed the sutra further to narrow down between the two dates of 1807 bc and 1510 bc using planetarium software he further studied the positions of the eclipses relative to the interpretations he has made from the sutra and arrived at 1807 bc as the year of buddha's parinirvana while professor achar also uses the same constraint on our end we have chosen to add an additional constraint that requires the lunar eclipse to have occurred at the start of the month and solar eclipse at the middle given weight to the phrase in the sutra that you know all kashyapa madha chandima and suryo visited in quick succession so that is the differentiator point now in the first method in our paper we've looked for the sequence of the above defined astronomical events that is 
consisting of the winter solstice, the lunar eclipse, solar eclipse occurring in the month of Madha, followed by the full moon of the Parinirvana during the entire period between 1900 to 300 BCE, visible from Shravasti. We have done this using two ways. One is Chalarium, and second is NASA's compilation of you know, uh, the solar and lunar eclipses. Having done so, we have arrived at 16 data points. A detailed study of each data point has included analysis of the nature of the eclipse, the lunar phases, the application of the constraint to each, which we defined earlier, and in the process, eliminate those which don't meet these above-defined criteria. The most viable year of Parinirvana, of Gautama Buddha, which has emerged from this process of elimination, is 1807 BC. In the second method, we have compiled the dates proposed by various schools of thought and people across the spectrum for Buddha's Parinirvana. This has included, this has included those from uh, Pandit Kota Venkatachalam, V.G. Ramachandran, uh, D.S. Tuveda, uh, then the traditional Chinese and bamboo annals, uh, tantric texts, Theravada Buddhist-based sources, and so on. A, most, a comprehensive compilation of 42 points and subjected each of those to the same astronomical methods which we defined earlier. Now, using these and by applying the constraint set and so on, the most viable year for the Parinirvana, again, which emerges from a process of elimination, is 1807 BC. The full tables of each of these data points are available in our paper on our academia profile. And uh, in the table, um, if, if the blue highlights, for instance. They are all indicative of the candidates which were chosen for analysis after applying the constraints and so on. All of these are available uh, in the paper. While we attest to the methodological soundness of our approach in using astronomy at um, arriving at chronological epochs, some important observations we wish to highlight are regarding the limited set of astronomical references from Buddhist literature that the current study is based on. Further, study would include widening the horizon to include auxiliary sources of references as well. The Samyutta Nikaya has been but one source. Other possible wellsprings include the study of texts and material that have um, spread along with the Buddhist teachings across Asia. Uh, unearthing of astronomical markers in texts from these regions would be invaluable to further study, for they would lead to expansion of both the data and the constraint sets. We are open to possible change in our conclusions with this potential expansion. We also acknowledge that the analysis of any additional data points, which are not currently a part of our data set, can subject our current conclusions to a further review. But based on the current uh, sample sizes that we have, the 1807 is the most likely uh, candidate. And we have also showed the uh, solarium charts for some of these eclipses. I now ask Mate to walk us through the conclusions of all the three sections of the Parinirvana. Thank you, Malavna. So we saw philology, archaeology, and astronomy. Now, in philology, 
if Dietz's essay is the most exhaustive treatment of dates of Buddha's Parinirvana, our examination reveals serious problematics that evidence, as demonstrated, selection bias, hasty generalization, confirmation bias, followed by circular reason. While Beshert dismisses long, corrected, and short chronology, his own proposal still underpinned by the questionable synchronism. Uh, in archaeology, if Hartel's essay is academically the most comprehensive, significant archaeological assessment uh, pertaining to the date of Buddha, for his essay to be seen as corroborations for results from other methods would not be robust anymore, given the new evidence that we have shown after 1995. If Conningham et al.'s results are robust, 546 BC marks for us authors a terminus antiquum for Buddha's Parinirvana until more robust findings emerge. At the same time, remember that you saw much greater ranges, but we are being conservative. Finally, on astronomy, if the interpretation given to the astronomical markers found in Buddhist texts, Samyukta Nikaya holds, then the use of stellarium and eclipse catalogs shows 1807 BC as most viable candidate for the year of Parinirvana. The authors also subject the year believed to be that of Parinirvana across a range of traditions and voices to the same constraints and 1807 BC emerges as the most probable year of the Parinirvana of Gautama Buddha. Over to you, Manogna, for acknowledgements again. Mary and I gratefully acknowledge the work of several people who have had an impact on our work. And the names on this screen don't comprise an exhaustive list. We are thankful to the team at Sanyam as well for giving us this platform uh, to present some of our work. Uh, thank you all for joining us today. And uh, we would be happy to take any questions pertaining to this particular presentation. And the acknowledgements, as Marugna said, is limited only to the Buddha paper, right? Uh, there are a lot of other scholars' works uh, for Aryan problems, for instance, from Conrad Els, who I believe is part of the session, and other scholars like Danino. A lot of people, we, we couldn't include all those names, but this is just a partial list for this particular paper. Ji, uh, this was a very uh, interesting presentation. I like the empirical approach. I just had a question about, uh, you know, the, uh, I would say, importance of the Aryan invasion theory in, in, in discounting a lot of uh, reset notions that we have been force-fed through academia, I, I guess, within the Indian academic system. And if uh, genetics has been used or you're considering that as a tool to disprove it, because if you look at uh, the genetic, I think there was a project, global project about human migration, it effectively disproved the Aryan invasion theory. So I was wondering how much uh, Aryan invasion theory weighed down, uh, you know, some of the postulates that you made or if that was a factor at all. And if for your future research, you would probably lean on, uh, you know, the genetic admixing and whatever information is available uh, so far. Mohit, while this is not specific to the Buddha, uh, we'll make an exception and take it because it is relevant to our framework on the Aryan problem, right? And it's not talking about anybody else's work. So we'll address this question. Um, so in our paper, we, we guide you to, to uh, our Academia of Profile Bharatiya Chronology 
find two things over there. One is our 2017 paper. It will start with the A of ABC of Indian chronology. Actually, find three things. Second is there's a presentation called Aryan uh, problem from the point of view of linguistics and textual evidence, which was in 2019. More importantly, the third one, uh, our response to the recent genetics, that is then reason, 2019 uh, genetics paper, uh, which which came out, and Bagish Narsuman et al. So the way we look at um, the whole issue of genetics and and the Aryan issue is we are careful about it. And we would like to place ourselves in the school of thought, like, for instance, Michel Denino, who has very carefully articulated the equation that irrespective of what genetics shows in terms of differences in different places, right, in terms of numbers, uh, any conclusion that any conclusion like PIE equal to R1A1, as in directly correlating, let's say, a language group or a language with a particular gene or a gene type is highly problematic in our view. Now, it does not matter whether you're arguing for an into-India hypothesis or an out-of-India hypothesis. If you are making this link between a gene type and language, I think a lot of care needs to be applied before such linking is made. At the same time, at the same time, uh, and as we mentioned in our paper, uh, we question the evidence for Aryan migration into India uh, from different fields. Uh, and we are careful not to put ourselves in the out of India, as in propagating an out of India position, though scholars who have propagated out of India positions uh, find some of our work useful to supplement their work. This comes also from the point of view that you know, since you mentioned the empirical evidence part, right? We don't see an empirical evidence for Proto-Indo-European, for instance, for that construct itself to, to exist. Now, if Proto-Indo-European can be demonstrated to have ex uh, existed, comparative historical linguistics as a method, and we refer you to uh, many scholars from linguistics themselves, from, you know, proper comparative linguistics, historical linguistics, who will tell you that absolute chronology information cannot be recovered from um, comparative methods? I'm wording this carefully. Absolute chronology information cannot be recovered from comparative linguistics method. At best, what you might get is relative chronology, but that itself has, uh, in some cases, more exceptions than the norms. So to summarize my answer, specifically on relationship with Aryan migration to genetics, uh, we would put ourselves in the camp of, let's say, Michel Denino, whose 2019 paper uh, very clearly puts out this equation of, you know, connecting a language group to, let's say, a gene type. We'd, we'd exercise caution over there. Uh, if you want to answer, uh, add anything to that, Manogna, please feel free. No, I, I think, uh, yes, I think uh, you've captured it well. And uh, it, it comes down to 
recognizing that while um, genetics as a discipline has its own methods, which it could be very, uh, you know, uh, could perhaps lead to a certain uh, important results. Uh, it is careful what assumptions are being brought in as the growing in by when using that as a discipline for any uh, analysis of the Aryan situation. I think that that is at the heart of it. And it's one needs to be very careful because that mistake has been repeated in history. And we don't want a different uh, version of wrong assumptions to be the basis of you know any theorizations so i think i think we choose to tread a bit carefully on that and i think uh, made has articulated it well some remarks from dr conrad elst i wonder if he would like to come in and say it himself he writes most approaches so far have not been multidisciplinary so this is a great breakthrough it ought to force all scholars to be more conscientious henceforth and he adds, the linguistic part is still weak, but as correctly quoted from linguistic, linguists themselves, linguistics by itself is powerless to pinpoint a time. And uh, I wonder if Dr. Elst would like to come in and say something, Dr. Elst? I recall that um, the speakers and I discussed this evidence already in 2018 in Chennai at Nandi Krishna's conference on the Mahabharata. And I was quite impressed with the results. But you see, three years ought to be enough to provoke some serious reactions. Like, for instance, the Tony Joseph book has been quoted all over the place. Um, so, you know, in, in this case, is there any reaction to be reported? Has this oh. ruffled any feathers? either among the Bechert crowd or among others? Uh, there might be different. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Elst, for your, uh, for your observations. And yes, uh, we recall uh, meeting you on multiple occasions of which one you mentioned. Uh, to a short answer is no, we don't know if there is any uh, response or if it has any ruffled, has ruffled any feathers. Uh, even with the Aryan thing, for instance, what we did with the National Portal of India, engaging with ICHR and uh, you know the other ministries uh, after our research, we partly kept it kind of under the radar, you know, in the sense uh, didn't go to the town, didn't go to town saying that this has happened, this change happened, because as you rightly pointed out, uh, uh, people like Tony Joseph and I want to be very respectable over here uh, as an individual. We don't know him. Might, might be a very good person. We are not commenting on Tony Joseph, the individual, but uh, his view ap appears to have a lot of dollars backing uh, backing it, whether it is in form of presence in talks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, or uh, space in media coverage. Uh, clearly, that's one area where we are disadvantaged. So we are hoping uh, that through an organic process, these things will will get picked up and then get amplified. We are not good at that part of it, so we do what we can do, which is just focus on the research part. I hope I have partially answered your question. So one of the slides uh, that you showed uh, was about the Aryan invasion slash migration theory uh, having an implication that Sanskrit is Sanskrit, Vedic, all these languages are non-indigenous to India. And uh, you present that as being an 
adverse consequence am i right in my interpretation to start with we are saying uh, we are saying that an aryan migration into india i'm being careful over here leads to the consequence that the earliest form of sanskrit and the vedic literature gets attributed to outside of the indian subcontinent at least certainly so the thing was that this was only the uh, you know trailer so yeah, yeah. the point is that even if it is proven that sanskrit is actually non indigenous or the most ancient form of sanskrit or vedic is non indigenous how does it really matter because sanskrit or vedic have undergone their greatest flowering anyway on the indian subcontinent this is just like greek where you know we know that greek is an uh, has intruded at some time you know way back before after the minoan civilization uh and, and but you know uh, greece uh, greek is as indigenous to the uh, grecian islands as any other and you know that literature is celebrated and so on it's no barrier that's what i want to tell you so why is it that we are uh, uh, there's any that barriers that sorry i'm losing you a bit so that's why i answer yeah yeah so uh, uh, to repeat i'll I go shall i go in? yes now i can i heard your question i think i got the gist of it no no i add to it after i just add this small bit uh, ramakrishnan ji what we agree with parts of what you said actually right uh, there is no need to you could celebrate the flowering as you as you put it and what we would be careful though is uh, for instance not finding any we are not being critical of the fact that you compared but that comparison first of all with greek is not necessary for us the way we are looking at it is what was our pursuit is to get to the truth of our civilization right part of our civilization now part of that is our our text our language etc etc uh, we would be very thankful to anybody any individual who can show us one source from for 17th century from before this loosely western enterprise to find language families that actually attributes sanskritam or early form of sanskritam or uh, the vedas to outside bharat most of the attestation be it inscriptions be it texts uh, other forms are attested to the indian subcontinent so the question for us is not necessarily why should you be worried that is i mean that's a separate thing what we are asking what we want to know is the truth tell us whether it belongs is it indigenous to this or not and if it's not and if it's established uh, empirically in a sound way that's fine in a verifiable way but there is a whole millennia of evidence which of it being indigenous to a particular place in earth and then there is few centuries of theorization which tries to relocate it based on certain you know constraints which come from a very specific corpus of civilization uh, i think anybody with a basic scientific outlook can ask the question uh, why did this change happen and where does the truth lie uh, for us those implications are, are are significant and if it turns out like i said if you can prove it otherwise then great no problem so that's that's how i would respond to that manog that you want to add i agree i agree i think i think that when when one sees the uh, nature of this imbalance when one tradition when has put out consistently 
uh, enough corpus of evidence to show that you know this prim the primary language with which it is associated is entirely uh, sustained within its own various uh, you know uh, uh, parts of flowering then i think the onus of burden should be why even entertain this uh, thought that you know i mean that that needs to find a heavier justification right i mean it, it's there is not sufficient evidence to warrant why the burden of proof needs to lie with them not questioning okay you know if if it is this what is the consequence exactly. it may not have much of it but we see it that way i think right and i just add one thing to madhugna uh, because she mentioned the burden of proof this is important uh, for people who are we have observed over time that when one raises critical observations about aryan migration into india hypothesis there is a transfer of burden immediately where people say oh if you are questioning migration then you need to explain a migration into india then you need to explain out of india theory as though if not this then this you need to realize that there is a fundamental hypothesis which creates this binary in the first place that fundamental hypothesis lies in what we see as linguistics and specifically historical linguistics that there was a language family that there was one thing from which other things emerge so if you don't argue this you have to argue the other thing we reject this binary the burden of proof is not on us according to us if we are raising questions on aryan migration it does not automatically mean that we have to explain out of india theory if you are properly if you are propagating aryan migration of in into india the onus is on you to establish it in way which is verifiable and because you have a proto indo european construct separately that you want to preserve that doesn't mean which by the way is not attested uh, that doesn't mean therefore the burden is on us to explain the other way around and also uh, a migration needn't have happened at one fixed point 1500 bc uh, for instance for languages to move there could have been migrations genetics could help us understand that there have been migrations across periods but this 1500 to 2000 bc which has a fairly multi century history and primary linguistics being its carrier we should remember that historical linguistics as a method does not give absolute chronology right so this fusing is something you should be careful of and in our view the burden of proof uh, is also another thing that one should be careful of Uh, yes actually you know that a pretty interesting point that i missed in my previous question was about the astronomical evidence that you had cited which has been used to kind of you know uh, predate a lot of uh, civilizations both within medieval europe and uh, some of the old uh, indigenous american tribes as well so i think that is a very uh, solid piece of evidence i'm not sure how validated stellarium is as a piece of software but i think that that puts a very strong case for your hypothesis so you know how acceptable it is within academia in your opinion and uh, you know uh, would you advocate uh, using this as a more robust methodology uh, for any future studies of your um i think i think in my view uh, as i think the method that we have used uh, in this paper for the astronomical analysis is sound what personally i would like to see more is more data points right as much as we have the compilation from across a range of traditional sources that apart actual astronomical references from within the text right from any uh, across the entire buddhist canon which can be studied 
and then applied uh, you know whether it is through stellarium whether it is through any other analysis right i think seeing an increase in that data set points would be invaluable in my opinion to extrapolate this to a much more robust study right there's no doubt that we've analyzed 42 points but that is through a process of elimination we've eliminated a whole set of data points that don't fit into our method but what i would like to see are more actual astronomical references that's why for instance when we consider uh, mahabharata from the uh, indian canon at least there is there is a handful of um, work uh, verses which can be subject to critical examination which have been subject to critical reading and you know one can extrapolate from them as to what could be whereas in this case i think we are constrained with uh, the verses and i think that's also that could also be perfectly due to our exposure to it maybe we need to also you know uh, expand our search which is a part of our ongoing uh, study that would i think throw up interesting results to expand this entire uh, method to a larger uh, you know view right and just to complement nanogna uh, in response to one the other facet of the question is uh, manogna and i i think are being very careful in judging a discipline saying okay this is the best discipline to take evidence from or that is the best this discipline to take evidence from part of the reason for deferring that judgment is because who are we <laughs> to decide that this discipline is better than the other discipline the other reason is sometimes the evidence from a certain discipline might give multiple uh, sources if the event is cyclical for instance in astronomy there is potential i'm not talking about this particular case but there could be cases where uh, an event is cyclical it repeats multiple times so you might not get one you know final result uh in in archaeology normally you get a range of years sometimes a range of years is good enough right sometimes a range of good years is not good enough for a very specific hypothesis who is to decide whether archaeology should be considered better than astronomy in certain cases it might be in certain cases it may not be uh how do you validate whether genetics is to be valued over um textual sources if that were to be considered uh will greek history be rewritten based on genetic sources because you have the greek history which is primarily based on literary evidence and that is precisely the point that we made in our table where we had the generic uh, format right uh, it appears to us that the indic civilizational narrative is subject to a very high standard of multidisciplinarity you need to have literary evidence then archaeology then geology then astronomy then ye sab theek hai then aur kuch mein problem hai etc whereas if you take for instance uh, the historicity of certain greek figures right uh, are these questions being asked are you applying a similar multidisciplinary standard we are not making a case for that to be applied but we are simply saying that if in one one uh, tradition it is okay to consider literary sources still be critical right still be careful still be logical etc but why do our literary sources become some kind of a stigma so therefore we need to what the point that we're trying to make broadly to complement manogna's uh, clarification on the technical aspect uh, and stellarium also i think manogna should clarify whether it's a good software or not but uh, this process of identifying which field is the best solution i think we take it case by case every case 
what is the analysis that is there what what is the evidence that is there see the relative weights and then determine of course there will be archaeologists who say that is their their domain is the best there might be archaeoastronomers who may say their domain is the best but uh, we are careful in uh, judging that and monogna on the stellarium yeah uh, to to further augment what you said i i think um, primarily as some as some as an um, person who you know uses astronomy i would say astronomy is a discipline works well only for triangulation purposes i would i would uh, be very careful in you know using that itself as the only discipline to uh, put out you know make uh, uh, assumptions and theories out of it uh on on the matter of stellarium yes i think stellarium is a good uh, software for this um i have uh, also used planetarium earlier but right now stellarium has been my main thing of course one can always now with the if it concerns eclipses then we can uh, you know uh, verify it with uh, other catalogs and so on like the five millennium catalogs at the same time i think it's also important that for every uh hun- every few hundreds of years that we are going back in time i think we should also be realistic in assuming what the error margins would be one should also be realistic in assuming uh you know what is the extent to which one can extrapolate uh statements because it's it's one thing to you know uh it's it's not it's it, they were all naked observations right naked eye observations to a certain point at the same time i think we've been very fortunate with the indian civilizational um, uh, situation because it's it's a phenomenal history of usage of astronomy right so that is why i think we are at a slight we are at a big advantage in terms of uh, being able to mine the texts and being able to see such a consistently robust and almost very almost accurate a good deal of accuracy maintained in the uh, tradition of astronomy itself in the indian canons so that is why i think a comparison point like a mahabharata keeps coming up in my mind because it may be easier to deal with that than let's say something with an auxiliary you know uh, portion which images but to come to the main uh, essence of the point yes i think stellarium is a good way of using it but keep in your mind the constraints that constantly emerge from using it as a tool thank you very much uh, I, my uh, i i noticed a particular slide where you were discussing uh, uh, bechet's uh, long chron- uh, dismissal of the modified long chronology right where uh, uh, one particular thing that stood out was that there were no indic or local sources uh, from which uh, he draws his conclusions uh i think this i uh, i'm not sure uh, of course you could clarify uh, this could be pro possibly because most of the indic sources have been uh, deemed creative or uh, unreliable etc but probably you could say uh, uh, i uh, say why that is the case uh the uh, the question though uh, uh, that i have is um, more uh, generic with respect to this what i would like to know is that uh, there are a number of foreign sources from which they are uh, depending on evidence right so particularly in the case of the buddha 
how does uh, this vary as you move away from the locus of action? I mean, uh, that is Northeast, Northwest India. How does the dates vary as you go farther away in time? So if we begin from a position of uh, thinking that we don't know the date of the Buddha or where he was from, etc., etc. Sorry, uh, uh, we know where he's from, but we don't know the actual date. Uh, how does this vary as, you know, the the depending on the um, change in the antiquity of the text, as well as the distance from the locus of action? So is there some way in which we could, um, you know, uh, suggest what could qualify as evidence? Because this actually seems to be the norm for Indian historiography, where all sorts of foreign Evidence is given precedence over local texts. Thank you. That's my question. Right. Uh, that's uh, fairly the multiple layers to that question. We may not be able to do full justice to the entire question simply because we have not jotted it down. But uh, Rajiv, may I know your background, please? If I may ask. Thank you very much. Um, I've been interested in this uh, um, uh, in, in Indian. Um, just briefly, uh, uh, I am in my middle age, but um, uh, the Aryan invasions theory, as it was taught in the um, in school, was actually a shock to me because I was brought up uh, uh, learning uh, stories from the Purana. So at one stroke, everything disappeared. It was only much later in the mid 2000s when uh, we followed. Uh, uh, debates of uh, L.G. and, uh, you know, uh, Frawley and uh, Witzel, etc., that uh, uh, we kind of tried, uh, got a better understanding. Thereafter, I did study a bit, uh, basically, K.D. Sechna and, uh, and, and, and uh, our Pandit uh, Kota Venkatachalam. But I'm basically an amateur. I'm, I, I'm, I'm a I used to be an engineer, but uh, right now an entrepreneur, small entrepreneur doing some work. This is my area of interest and okay. I'm deeply passionate about it. Thank you. Okay. Okay, great. So you started off your, thank you for giving us a sense of your background. You started off by making an observation about a statement about Indic text uh, attestation not being there. That was not part of your question. That was an observation. We will refer you to our entire paper might take you 45 minutes to one and a half hours to read it at normal reading speed. We encourage you to read the entire paper and then come back to us if you have uh, that doubt still in your mind. That's part one. That's not your question. Now, coming to your question, uh, it's an interesting one and something that Malogna and I have discussed, especially when you first consider the, the, the distance part, you know, where you were careful to say that we know where he was born, but we don't know what his period was, right? You made loosely that statement. I'm not quoting you back and from what I've noted now. Now, the way Manodna and I are looking at, we'll come to the other parts of your question also, but just a response to that first. The way we are looking at it is there was some idea or memory of uh, the date of Buddha before 17th century also, before 16th century, 15th century. There is, as we mentioned, Vedvir Arya who brings in certain uh, sources which are neither European nor Indian and shows how Buddha predates a particular person from that text, which is also another corpus of evidence. So 
we our starting point is not necessarily that his period was never remembered our starting point was to see was his period remembered first if it was remembered how was it remembered in what sources right that is when you get the range of sources that are involved right so there it becomes interesting for instance the sri lankan sources the siloni sources give you this this 500 bc in that range right so if buddha was born in a particular place unless you assume fantastic uh, communication and you know transportation in 500 bcs uh, etc it would be little hard to imagine how that nation for instance proceeded so quickly to that place and where you have an entire history all being set up there are certain questions which one can raise in terms of uh, you know the distance and locus why is it that the chinese and the japanese remember a much earlier period what is clear is that the european scholars had a clear motivation to reduce that right through the synchronism because for them at that point of time there was the asha chronology there was the biblical frame and this whether right or wrong whether valid or not in 21st century was clearly exceeding their frame and one handle that they used was sandrocotes which kd setna ji has also written about uh, sandrocotes is then considered to sound similar to chandragupta now why chandragupta maurya there is chandragupta gupta also right if one were to accommodate the phonetic similarity for a moment we are not saying it is similar but if you were to accommodate it there are two chandraguptas and we are not the first ones who are making this point this point to me made several people unfortunately it is not known enough right so there could be there there is another chandragupta or is sandrocotes sounding like samudragupta for instance if you can argue that sandrocotes sounds like chandragupta i would argue for instance that sandrocotes could sound like samudragupta also right so there was a motivation for a particular tradition to fit it into a particular narrative and therefore the long chronology got corrected to the corrected long chronology right but the long chronology itself was only one of the many views that existed at that point of time and that reduction in our view is both hasty and it is also it also shows a confirmation bias as we have articulated with regard to distance from where the person is born that may or may not be a correlation but whether we should add weight to that correlation is something that one should evaluate carefully because these are i think external constraints that we are bringing on to the topic at hand which is uh, and the topic at hand for instance in greek sources if you are dealing with this problem would be very simple is there a source verifiable source is it textual is it archaeological is it something material that you can you know pick up and there has been as we shown troyer's view which says that we, he has remembered that the hindus remembered chandragupta maurya in 1502 bc you're not saying it is absolutely correct but we are saying there is that memory why was that missed out and that drives that has driven our exploration our our view of shortlisting i think the the on on your third layer of correlating distance from the place of birth is something that can be undertaken to see if it it uh, supports an hypothesis on a particular view but the initial feeling is one might need to be careful about taking that as a very strong influencing basis to 
influence the discussion on the date itself manogna do you want to add um i i i read that uh, i think it's a very interesting um, you know point to explore further and the way i see it is that uh, possible potential lines of exploration are linked um not only in terms of let's say the um, uh, buddhist literature which passed on from the geographical area that we associate with buddha's life to you know further let's say to the immediate neighborhood of tibet or china or whatever other geographical spread that we see i think it would be interesting to see if even um along with the uh, buddhist literature if, if there has been any other uh you know work which has in, in any other intellectual material which has been uh, taken along that would have left behind some markers and there are interesting um uh, you know papers bill mark for instance he he studies the influence of indian astronomy on chinese astronomy and especially let's say which emerge from um you know from influences of buddhist texts so there are i think i think there are a uh, tertiary levels which are there right now i mean most of the data that is there could be at the level that one would say tertiary but it would be actually a very interesting line of work to examine them further and see what is it that emerges it was even in 1880 when in the book that we've used reverend vidyant he is openly acknowledging that tibetans and mongols and chinese which is geographically closest to the uh, you know the region associated with Uh, Buddha acknowledge and much prefer a much earlier time to that of the Sinhalese, and the Europeans knew about it. So there is there is acknowledgement of this, there is an attestation of it. But um, how that actually maps out with to create a pattern, right? To create a pattern and to derive that as a conclusion, I think it would need a lot more primary and secondary data sources to validate. But it's definitely a, a, an interesting uh, point to explore. 